Can you tell us what is the green stimulus and how are voters reacting to it? So the green stimulus is basically the idea that we are going to need another in what I would call the fourth round of major spending from Congress. Um, the first round of major spending we saw was uh, just shy of $9 billion, which was really aimed at uh, public health efforts. The second round of funding that Congress uh, passed a few weeks ago was trying to bolster, uh, uh, sorry, trying to provide sick leave and medical leave for workers who were being affected by the crisis. Uh, what we're seeing passing that, what we're seeing right now, Congress finalizing is what I'd call the third round of stimulus. Um, but it's not really stimulus. It's really an economic relief package that's meant to minimize the fallout from the economy being devastated by this current pandemic. Um, the current package that just passed the Senate isn't something that's, for instance, going to put the millions and millions of people that are currently being sidelined back to work. It's really a measure trying to stabilize consumer spending and make sure people don't lose their homes, don't get kicked out of their apartments, small businesses don't shutter things of that nature. So what that leaves us with is an economy that is going to need to get kickstarted come time where public health experts tell us it's safe to return to work. It's not where we are right now, but it is where we'll hopefully be in the uh, coming weeks and or more likely coming months. Um, and you know, when that time comes due, we're going to have upwards of 10 plus million workers sideline that are going to need to be put back to work. And the economy doesn't just rev back up to a, a hundred miles an hour overnight for that to happen we're going to need another round of uh congressional stimulus in the form of a green stimulus package is what we argue for what we're calling for is a two trillion dollar green stimulus to create millions of family sustaining green jobs that lift standards of living across the country accelerates a just transition off fossil fuels and ensures a controlling stake for the public in all private sector bailout plans, and finally help society um, and the economy become stronger and more resilient, not only in the face of pandemic and recession, but also the current climate emergency we're facing in the years ahead. You had asked me about voters' opinions, and right now uh, Data for Progress just ran a poll last week, and we found that uh, voters are largely supportive of spending $2 trillion on green stimulus. Uh, we asked voters if they would be in favor of this over a 10-year time horizon to invest in clean energy and jobs. And we found that um, on average, uh, you know, a plurality of voters um, were in favor of it, um, while only uh, less than a third of respondents were opposed to it. About 70, almost 75% of Democrats uh, were in favor. And importantly, 60% of people under 45 were strongly in favor of are strongly in favor or somewhat in favor of this spending. Um, and these are the people whose lives are going to really be the most impacted moving forward by the climate crisis. It's encouraging to hear you talk about the, the phases so far of congressional action uh, related to the coronavirus, you know, the, the health, and now this, this kind of business um, bailout is $2 billion, uh, the Senate package. Um, and, and to hear that what you're working on is something that, that, that will uh, boost the economy more at the end of this crisis, whereas we're kind of at the beginning of it uh, here in the U.S. Um, but I, I was reading today that, uh, like in the last week, 3.3 million people filed uh, 
unemployment claims, which is incredible. What should organizers be doing and how, you know, how would a, this green stimulus, a $2 trillion package be forwarded in the Congress? Do you have people who are already there or is Data for Progress the, the leader on this in terms of, of, of letting people know that the public is hungry for real change? Yeah, so uh, great questions, and I appreciate them. Uh, just to, to back up for a second, I want to touch on um, recent numbers showing that unemployment level, I'm uh, sorry, unemployment claims reached 3.3 million workers last week. Yeah. First of all, to put that in context, right, that's just a shitload of people. Right. Um, we're talking about absolute devastation in the labor markets right now. Um, for context, the worst week in history came in 1982 when about 650,000 workers were laid off. Oh my God. Wow. So you're we, talking like a 5X increase. Yeah, we are blowing the history books out of the water right now, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so the, the, the situation is, is quite dire. Um, the second thing is that that 3.3 million uh, number is a massive undercount. Uh, most economists believe that it's significantly higher than that. And I'm not talking a few thousand workers. I'm talking hundreds of thousands of workers that aren't being counted in those numbers for a variety of reasons, including the fact that um, state and county unemployment offices are just been being so overwhelmed that their phone lines are crashing, their websites are crashing, their offices are, are closed for health reasons. Right. So a lot of workers that are being laid off aren't able to file unemployment claims and many, many more who are being laid off don't know that they actually qualify for unemployment claims. So a lot of workers have been what is called furloughed. Um, and those workers do indeed qualify for unemployment claims, but a lot of them uh, might be unaware of that. So there's wow. a lot of reason to believe that the crisis is, is much worse than the initial headline numbers reveal. And then a lot of us economists also think that this, you know, layoffs this week might be comparable or even worse than they were last week. Last week really was just the tip of the iceberg. So we're just starting to, to see the numbers unfold. And the numbers really aren't coming in in real time fast enough for us to fully understand the, the scale of the crisis on our hands. Um, in terms of you know, what activists can be doing to organize around a Green New Deal and, and what organizations can be doing, you know, there, there's a lot. Um, first of all, I'd say that there's a lot of great actors in this space. I, along with a set of experts that advise the Inslee campaign, the Warren campaign, the Sanders campaign, and the Steyer campaign, recently wrote an open letter to Congress calling for a major green stimulus, as I, I outlined at the top of the show. Um, and that's been signed now by over 1,200 experts in social and climate policy in the United States including, you know, mainstream names like Gina McCarthy, the former head of the EPA under President Obama. Um, so it's the letters gain widespread support. We've been sending it to many members of Congress on the Hill and have been engaging in conversations with their staffers. Um, I'm cautiously optimistic that some green stimulus will indeed uh, make it into the next round of stimulus. However, um, to, you know, to be frank, I think we're really going to need a regime change to see a <laughs> massive uh, investment in in the green economy that we so desperately need. Unfortunately, this administration is uh, hell bent on preserving the oil and gas industry, even though a pivot to green energy and to the green economy would provide more jobs, likely better jobs, and certainly uh, far better indicators in terms of reducing emissions and cleaning up our air and water, which is 
uh, at current levels of pollution, killing tens of thousands of Americans every year unnecessarily, in particular in frontline communities. So there's a lot of work to be done, and I don't want to be overly pessimistic, but we have an uphill battle ahead of us where we need to engage everybody in the fight to force Congress's hand in passing a green stimulus plan. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Uh, do you could you make um, you know I don't know how you know how much you, you have on this, but could you make a comparison uh, of what this time and what the future economic outlook um, is currently in the states um, in regard and and compare it to the Great Depression and you know on top of that how what tools FDR used to, uh, you know, bring the country out of the Great Depression and how it's similar to, uh, to the green stimulus? Yeah, those are some great, great questions. So, you know, what we're seeing right now is something that's unprecedented for anybody alive. Um, the, you know, proper comparisons are really looking both at World War II, as a matter of fact, and the Great Depression. The reason I bring up World War II is World War II was a time where large swaths of the U.S. economy were either nationalized or came under direct planning of the U.S. federal government in order to meet social needs. At the time, it was for the war effort. Uh, right now, um, you know what we're really looking at are is mobilizing the economy around addressing the global pandemic. There was a recent call from President Trump to uh, implement the Defense Production Act. Um, and unfortunately, you know, which is basically would have allowed the U.S. government to retool factories, for instance, to produce ventilators, to prevent the N95 masks, other uh, dire needs that would save lives in this country. Um, and unfortunately, President Trump and his administration have decided not to use those executive powers in order to save Americans. Um, this is really coming out of him and his administration's evil desire to save business at the cost of uh, Main Street, which is, is deeply, deeply unfortunate. And, and all of us should be troubled by, by those actions and, and also by their inactions. Right now, we're dealing with a crisis that looks like it will eclipse the 2008 financial crisis. But I also want to say that there are just too many unknowns at the moment. So the kind of one of the biggest unknowns we're dealing with is how long the shutdown or at least partial shutdown of the country will have to last um, due to the administration's failure to take proper precautions and follow the advice of public health officials. We're actually looking at a much more severe long term economic downturn than if we had just simply shuttered the economy for a few weeks in its entirety um, and then opened it back up because this virus is likely to persist. Um, due to our failure to actually uh, contain it and engage in proper social distancing in the country. So I'm, I'm fairly pessimistic on our outlook, not only for uh, Q1 and Q2 of this year, but uh, likely for Q3 as well, because of our inability to get the virus under control. Um, public health experts have pretty thoroughly outlined the proper steps we need to be taking, and the administration uh, just isn't taking it seriously enough. Um, if only we had an FDR type leader, either in the White House or running against uh, President Trump. Uh, you know, unfortunately, it looks like um, Vice President Joe Biden will be able to get the Democratic nomination. Um, and I, 
you know, only wish we had another candidate, perhaps somebody like Senator Sanders, who had the energy and vision to really uh, redirect the U.S. economy to not only protect public health, but to put workers' interests before main, before Wall Street's interests, which is what we're seeing, you know, which is the exact opposite of what the current administration is doing. Um, Do you see, a, 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 I would interject with like a super political question, because this is obviously the big one that everyone's thinking about as it shifted to, to Biden being, a, you know, a kind of an insurmountable front runner in terms of how the Democratic Party runs its primaries. I, I kind of see him as an avatar for the party itself, right? They picked uh, kind of a, uh, the best known, most well-liked candidate out of the field, despite the fact that he's not uh, really that charismatic anymore and he's not really championing uh, the most exciting policies. Uh, and I fear that we might, you know, be looking at the Senate being, you know, the Democrats that are coming, running against Republicans, even if they win, they're kind of these more bureaucratic, more traditional uh, Democrats uh, who are kind of pro-corporate, not going to paint a stark contrast with what needs to be done. Is is there an opportunity, though, maybe for the groups um, that uh, either, you know, endorsed one of the four candidates you mentioned earlier, or there was the talk of like Senator Sanders had like nine outside groups supporting him, including the Sunrise Movement and, and including a, a number of you know, more grassroots activists. Do you see that the Green New Deal is something that all these folks can rally around? Because Senator Sanders and Senator Warren, they're in the Senate, you know, they have a big voice. Yeah. So, you know, right now what we're seeing is a, you know, earlier in the election season, we saw a major rise of the American left in the Democratic Party. Yeah. It was the most promising time in politics since I, or most of us for that matter, have, have been alive. Um, you know, unfortunately, the Democratic Party has done everything it's could, it's can to squash the left rather than embrace the left. And yeah. it's deep, deeply missing deeply, deeply um, misguided and unfortunate. So, you know, what we're seeing now is that, you know, Biden looks likely unstoppable given the the way that the Democrats structure their primaries. Um, And, you know, there's less and less space for Senator Sanders um, and the broader American left to have a significant say in what things look like. Um, I am really dreaming of a Green New Deal caucus in the Senate moving forward. Um, and I think some form of organizing body like that could help us ensure that uh, green provisions are prioritized as we as we think about not only the next round of stimulus, but also just general governance moving forward. Uh, the climate crisis isn't going anywhere. Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, there's been this long-term bipartisan love affair with either climate denialism or climate delay, where I think most Democrats are, are similarly guilty to most Republicans, where they fail to take the crisis seriously enough. And they've really brought us to this breaking point where we need to engage in a crash decarbonization package. If, you know, if Democrats and Republicans had acted sensibly 30 years ago, when scientists were first uh, ringing the alarm bells, for instance, when Dr. James Hansen testified to Congress in 1988, telling them that the greenhouse effect is real and that it threatens both national security and the economy, we'd be in a very different situation than we are now, but we can't wind back the clock. We're, you know, staring down um, the edge of the cliff as we speak. 
Mark, I'm, I'm very familiar with uh, AOC's Green New Deal resolution, and uh, it, it is very aligned with, uh, I have a, a political action committee that my consulting firm uh, runs projects for, and it's a way to uh, take our own political action. And we're very focused on the Green New Deal because it includes things like uh, a, a federal job guarantee, uh, it includes uh, things like Medicare for all, it includes uh, housing, um, but in your stimulus plan, uh, you get into some very specific, like very, uh, you know, nitty gritty, these are gonna change the economy, everything from meat alternatives to new re renewable energy and smart grid technology. Can you talk a little bit about what, how voters are responding to these individual pieces of the of the puzzle, things that could happen, you know, I think you said two trillion in the next ten years, um, and also what are lessons for organizers in some of them that that are not polling as well. You know, there's a lot of aspects of the Green New Deal that poll uh, unbelievably well, and writ large, the Green New Deal tends to be supported uh, by voters. Uh, so, for instance, when we ask that voters whether or not they support green industrial policy. Um, they they overwhelmingly answer in the affirmative. If we ask uh, whether or not voters support uh, investments in renewable energy, things like smart grid, uh, battery technology, electric buses, retrofitting buildings, the building sector actually accounts for forty percent of emissions in this country. So it's a it's a huge area that needs to be and our electric on. bills, right? <laughs> uh, not yeah. I mean, all of us have uh, an electric bill, or if you grew up in the Northeast like I did, you also have a a heating bill for uh, your oil <laughs> furnace in the basement to uh, stay warm during those frigid New England winters. And I mean, let me tell you, when I was living in Massachusetts, my heating bill was three hundred dollars a month in December and January. These things are, are massive problems for low and middle income Americans. I mean, one in six Americans are what we call utility burden, meaning they just struggle on a regular basis to meet their basic utility bills. And wow. we have the means to fix that. But, you know, over 60% of voters support um, large scale investment in the things that I just listed off, listed off for you. Um, so, you know, we do see that there's a large scale support for a lot of these policies. Um, you know, trade is another one where 55% um, of voters favor generous trade um, agreements that favor green technology and solidarity with low income countries um, in order to try to, to help them out. Um, you know, some of the less popular things would be things like meat alternatives. So for meat alternatives, about 36% of voters are either somewhat in favor or strongly in favor. Um, whereas we have 26% strong opposition and an additional, you know, 20% that are somewhat opposed, which brings you to, to about 45% in general in opposition. So, you know, that's, that's a harder one. Um, here, I think a lot of it's just going to be experience, um, getting the alternatives out there. Uh, getting people to try them, see that that you know they're more people good. are trying them with the meat shortages around this uh, this pandemic. I've seen that. I've seen people posting about trying them, and I've also seen it in the supermarkets myself. It's pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, I, I tried it for the first time about two and a half years ago. I had a, a meat alternative burger, and let me say, as a longtime carnivore, it was really good. <laughs> Right. It's really changed. It's not that. Uh, yeah, it's not. It, so, so much of this, it seems like is, is education as well, right? People are familiar with renewable energy. They're not as familiar with like extracting beet proteins to make uh, hamburgers. 
Totally. So, you know, not to wonk out too much here, but we have good studies that show when your neighbors get solar panels, you're more likely to get solar panels. There's a neighborhood effect. Uh Uh People see that, oh, you know, electric vehicles don't have range problems. Solar panels are a good financial investment if you have the means and have a roof to put them on um, and can, you know, bring you carbon free energy. Um, I think the same thing is going to happen with particularly uh, electric cars and meat alternatives moving forward as they become more popular um, folks are gonna you know be able to debunk a lot of the the scary myths around them and, and people are realize that these are actually pretty pretty good alternatives here yeah I think uh, what we've seen during this like pandemic um, and you know I'm sure you both have seen it on social media that you know people are like so surprised that you know the air is cleaner and like it seems like the impact of climate change is slowing down for a moment because um you know people aren't out there um but like the re-education needs to happen where it's like it's not the people that are the issue it's all the production and all of our energy sources that are polluting our our environment um, and like, this could be a perfect time for that re-education. It's just like, we need, um, you know, leaders in, in politics themselves to, to do that. And it's unfortunate we have a left party in this country and that, that isn't a main priority of theirs apparently. Yeah. You know, I think that most of this, uh, you know, education really needs to take place in the halls of power in Congress. Um, You know, the people are interested in decarbonization, the the people support policy measures to put the U.S. economy on on a track to decarbonize in a reasonable time frame. The people who are failing to act as Congress, a lot of this is because the fossil fuel companies have them in their pockets. Uh, Time and time again, we see that fossil fuel, the fossil fuel industry is some of the largest campaign contributors. And they're not just giving to Republicans, they're giving to Democrats too in many instances. And we need to find a way to put an end to that. We actually have a a forthcoming report on the idea of nationalizing the fossil fuel companies as a way to neutralize their political power once and for all, which I think is is a a really reasonable idea. And we have a rich history of nationalization here in the United States. We're really pissed here in California because uh, last week they gave uh, PG&E an okay on its uh, bankruptcy plan instead of taking it over. You know, we had the opportunity to nationalize the, the one of the dominant right. facilities here. Yeah. And in California, um, like the Sempra Energy is one of the uh, fossil fuel companies that runs like um, the local uh, gas, gas and power um, in California. And they give to all of the Semper Energy donates to all of the Democratic uh, California congressional represent, uh, representatives. And it's like, of course, that, you know, these um, reps in California don't want to act as quickly as we need them to because the fossil fuel companies are lining their pockets. And it's just like, it's very evident. Being able to neutralize the political power of large-scale industry would really transformatively reshape the political landscape here in the U.S. That should ideally start with turning uh, turning over Citizens United, um, but the current makeup of the Supreme Court just makes that almost <laughs> unthinkable at this moment, which is precisely why we need to ensure Donald Trump doesn't win another four years. 
Yeah. Um, you know, despite the fact that Biden is not exactly the most exciting candidate to rally behind, I think that uh, we do need to find a way to, um, you know, ensure that he's able to beat Trump. And then importantly, find a way to hold his feet to the fire and make him act as boldly as possible on the current climate crisis. Because we don't have another four years. We don't have um, you know, even another year for that matter to hold off on, on bold action. And, you know, the, the one thing I'll mention in, in relation to the current downturn, it's literally never been cheaper to invest in the climate. Um, right now, the U.S. government can borrow at historically low rates, right. such that investing in climate should be absolutely our top priority. We're literally leaving free money on the table by failing to do so right now. I really look forward to digging more into the the green stimulus and and learning more about the folks who've signed on to it, the experts, because uh, we talked one really early on one of these Adriel versus the oligarch shows about how quickly you could use this kind of stimulus to reshape the economy. Uh, everything from tuition, you know, for example, if you forgave tuition debt and all of a sudden people had a few hundred dollars a month extra money, and then you incentivize the production of uh, electric vehicles, people would be able to afford them, right? And you give them a rebate on that. So you could very quickly use government money and uh, also private industry to dramatically reshape the uh, consumer energy economy. And I'm sure there are so many other ideas in uh, in in the green stimulus. Uh, and some of it seems like it could be done very quickly, like a matter of years, you know, in, in the real timeline in which we need to take action to save the climate. You know, we have the the policy ideas, we have the technological expertise, we have the will to decarbonize the economy. What we don't have right now are the political leaders that are willing to enact it. So this, you know, this isn't an issue of figuring out every last detail in terms of, of policy analysis or every last technical detail. This is an issue that our leaders are failing to hit the deploy, deploy, deploy button mm. and get us moving on the right track. Um, which is, you know, precisely where uh, activists come into play that need to continue to do the great work that they've been doing, um, you know, whether it be Sunrise Movement or the many other excellent uh, youth climate groups and environmental groups out there that have, have been holding power accountable for years and decades at this point. And we need to keep supporting those groups and helping them build their ranks uh, in order to reach a critical mass where the policymakers have to start listening to the people. Yeah, I'm I'm with Sunrise LA and we we actually protested outside of a Biden fun uh, fundraiser in uh, Bel Air a, a, a month ago. Um, and that, you know, picked up some traction uh, on social media. And regardless of, you know, the, the nominee or the president in, in 20, uh, 2020, in 2021, 2022, like, um, I think a lot of activist groups are preparing for, um, you know, a large amount of civil disobedience regardless. Um, and I think, you know, it, we've done a lot as far as changing the public narrative in regards to climate change and climate inaction with our politicians. And I think people will be really surprised in 2020 and uh, then the 2020 and 2021 when they see like just how serious 
um, you know, the younger generations are about protecting our future. Um, you know, we're taking a hit right now with, with the pandemic, but um, I think a lot of kids are really, are really pissed off and, and hopefully that amount of public pressure um, from activists will, you know, begin to turn the tide in Congress, but we'll, we'll see. Let me first say, you know, thank you for your work as an organizer in LA with Sunrise. It's such vital work to have young people not only in the streets but also knocking on on member of congress's doors and, and demanding action um, this crisis though is presenting us you know with grave challenges and you know one of those challenges is thinking about how are we going to restart the economy and i simply cannot think of a better way to restart the economy than addressing what is arguably our most pressing social need beyond the pandemic being the climate crisis. Can you just imagine if we instituted a, a 21st century uh, concert, civilian conservation corps modeled after FDR's program during the Great Depression and put millions of young people to work? I'm, wow. a, prof I'm a professor. I asked my students, you know, how many of you would take a job for $15 an hour for two years when you finish school uh, to go work in the C you know, 21st century CCC engaging in climate mitigation and adaptation. And over 90% of my students raised their hand. Wow. I mean, these kids yeah. want to get engaged. They want to change the world. They're willing to do the work. They just need politicians to, to take the neoliberal shackles off of our country <laughs> and allow them to, to get it done. Yes, right. I feel that 100%. Mark, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Are there any resources that you'd like to point uh, our listeners to before... Uh, before you, you leave, we'll obviously be following this closely and sharing it from our own social media. Sure. So, I, you know, I'd love for folks to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Mark Van Paul. I post all my recent research there. Uh, the two groups that I largely work with right now around decarbonization that are just putting out excellent research on how the country and economy could engage in a crash decarbonization program that puts workers first are the Roosevelt Institute and Data for Progress. Both organizations are just doing amazing work to really lead the way on the policy front in order to ensure that we do this as equitably and as fast as possible. Awesome. Well, thank, thanks to you and to both of those organizations to keep up the great work and really stay appreciate safe. It. I appreciate thanks, you Mark. having me on the show. Great right. talking with y'all. A little while back on the show, we had uh, Sang Peruri, who's my friend uh, who runs Outreach Circle, uh, where I've been an advisor for several years. Uh, it's one of the uh, apps that we've uh, featured on this show that help uh, voters organize. And we really like uh, online organizing, uh, distributed organizing, and also uh, call it um, like dual power organizing when direct action is backed up uh, with online amplification uh, or when uh, online activism uh, becomes direct action and spurs uh, offline uh, reactions and uh, change. Uh, there's a new technology that just came out from another uh, one of uh, Adriel Hampton Group's partners, uh, which is uh, Action Sprout. Uh, and I've talked about Action Sprout here in the past. It's a great uh, desktop application for helping uh, find content, relevant content for your Facebook page, whether that's about the Green New Deal or climate, uh, Medicare for all, or uh, other issues specific to, uh, to your Facebook page's uh, cause. And over the past couple of years, we've been doing a lot of work with candidates 
Uh, I was very active in Virginia with Action Sprout uh, in, in 2019. And they've just released a brand new mobile app. And it's interesting because there are similar features within Outreach Circle. But here we're looking just at Facebook. How do you organize on Facebook? And the new app is it's called Voices by Action Sprout. It's in beta in both the uh, Apple and uh, Android stores. And uh, what it does is it allows the people using Action Sprout uh, for their Facebook page and their campaign uh, to enroll using a code in the app uh, folks who download the app to then reshare critical content. Uh, so you're kind of building a Facebook amplification and organizing army through this app called Voices. Um, so we've just started using it. We're, we're doing a pilot project with uh, the PAC around uh, one of our endorsed candidates and uh, the Green New Deal. Um, but Richie, what do you think about like uh, organizing people to be loud on a specific platform or for a specific group, uh, you know, making their Facebook activism a little bit more refined. Yeah, I mean, what you see now on Facebook is, <clears throat> is um, you know, a lot of people sharing bad information. And mm. so you mean negative information or flat out wrong information? Like, I think I see both. <laughs> both, both for sure, for sure. But like, just like, like wrong information um, and negative, but mainly the, the wrong information. And, um, you know, what can happen is that it will like, you know, extend past just regular friend groups and, and get passed into, um, you know, uh, like the, the pages um, and the, the private groups and, and it starts spreading there. And it's kind of like the coronavirus, the uh, it just keeps spreading all this fake news on Facebook. And so what we have to do, um, you know, as far as organizing goes, it is get, you know, the right information out there, get correct information and also use that correct information to push a more progressive um, agenda. And so, you know, using like people are going to be on Facebook and people are going to be sharing and it's all about, you know, tapping in and figuring out how we can, you know, take Facebook from sharing fake people on Facebook from sharing fake news or bad or negative news into sharing green new deal, uh, ads and, and all that stuff. And so, like you mentioned with the app, as far as organizing people and like-minded people, um, you know, that's how we'll really start to, uh, you know, change or, or, or have some influence on those kind of platforms. So it's a good point. So it's, it's about providing trusted leadership in, right. in content. And we need to be figuring out uh, the tools and practices that help us do that. Because in the absence of it, uh, people are still using Facebook uh, without a lot of intention. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty, uh, you know, from what we've seen, it, it, it's pretty bad. And, and the and you see how quickly and easily things are shared. Like incorrect information can be shared at, at a, a click of a button, and if it looks good, uh, you know, um, I don't want to go too far off point, but there was this thing on on Facebook social, uh, excuse me, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, from this page called Info Beautiful, and they had these really nice looking graphs about the coronavirus stuff. 
but it was very misleading and everything was done. They were all done on like flat scales. So you couldn't see the progress of everything. And so what people were doing, they were resharing these graphs and like, oh, it's not that bad. Like look at it in, in comparison to the common flu because, you know, the, these people broke it down in comparison to how like diff different viruses have, um, you know, their death rates over, over a year. And it got, it kept getting shared on social media and on Facebook and people were, and then like days later, cause you know that, you know, these cases are accelerating, um, on a day by day basis, but people were sharing these graphs like four days later and like thinking because they look nice that they're providing like good information. It's not fake news, but it's bad information to be sharing right. that. And so it's just like, you one, you have to become like a trusted source and, and fill a group of like-minded people and organize and say, you know, this is the message we need to be pushing. And, you know, Action Sprout ha has those tools available. And if, if folks are interested, uh, the, the PAC has a, an account uh, and, and you can sign up for voices to amplify news about the Green New Deal and uh, climate crisis. Uh, we're going to focus a lot on, on positive stuff, um, but also things you can do. Also getting people elected who will, uh, who will fight for a Green New Deal, uh, who would support the Green Stimulus, who could be part of the Green New Deal caucus and the House and the Senate. Um, our code is 176660 uh, for the, uh, the, the uh, pilot we're doing. Uh, to organize uh, social sharing from Facebook. Um, thanks, Richie, for joining. Thank you, Matt. And thank you to all of the listeners. Uh, that's it for this episode of Adriel versus the Oligarchs. Thanks, Adriel. All right. All right. Sounds all right. Like a take. <laughs>